So the other day, I'm uh, standing there in the kitchen, staring into the fridge as if the most perfect food item might magically appear. You laugh because you've been there before. When all of a sudden, there across the house, I hear the sound of a door slamming shut. It slams with a great big wham. And then it's followed by the quick sound of rustling. Less like leaves and more like somebody trying to jog in one of those 90s neon windbreakers, you know, with the matching pants. And so I, I walk across the house a little unsure, a little hesitant, and I see the door that slammed shut, the one that slammed with the great big wham. And I take in my hand the oil rub bronze doorknob, and I give it a twist, and I peer into the room, and it's complete blackness. I can't see a thing. And so I, I do what any normal person would do. I mean, it's my house. It's not some haunted mansion. I, I flip on the light. And what to my wondering eyes should appear but the cutest little combination of a sumo wrestler, a silverback gorilla, and the Michelin man, our one-year-old son, Ezekiel Fox, or as we like to call him, Zeke. Zeke looks up at me and gives me one of those big Mickey Mouse smiles. <sighs> but how could you blame him? Cut the guy some slack. He's only got three and a half teeth. One and a half up top and two on the bottom, so every smile looks like Chuck E. Cheese or some related rodent. <laughs> and there he sits under his teepee, and he holds in his chubby little fingers a book of lofty proportions. A fascinating read, a novel of great depth and insight, a, a story of dramatic twists and turns and character development and symbolism and irony. He holds in his hands the literary classic, Good Night Moon. <laughs> and so I snatch the book from his chubby little fingers and I begin to thumb through the first few pages and I'm hooked. <laughs> In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. And there were three little bears sitting on chairs and two little kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse and a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush and a quiet old lady who was whispering, hush. I feel grubby paws on my pants leg, pulling them. Uh, and he looks up at me as if to say, Dad, can I get my book back? <laughs> and it occurs to me in that moment that, Zeke, this is all crazy talk. I mean, take a look at this. In the great green room. So it must be like a youth center or boys and girls club or something like that. Unless it's Joanna Gaines Green. Then it's a bedroom to die for. There was a telephone, like with a cord and a dial, 
Where's the Angry Birds app? And a red balloon, hopefully with a latex allergy warning and a choking hazard for children under the age of three and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. Because cows got hops, right? And there were three little bears sitting on chairs. Just go with it, I guess. And two little kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse. And everybody's chill about it. Like, oh, no. Don't call pest control. Let's keep it. And the bubonic plague. And a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush, dairy-free, soy-free, gluten-free, grain-free, nitrate-free, I hope. And a quiet old lady who was whispering... Hush. And in the picture, she's a rabbit wearing pajamas with knitting needles. It occurs to me that, Zeke, this is all crazy talk. Well, today as we continue our sermon series, The End and the Beginning, we're going to be exploring some seemingly crazy talk. But it's seemingly crazy talk that It moves the believer in Jesus to the end of obstruction, to the end of being obstructed and the beginning of being open. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read from our memory verse, Isaiah 46, verse 10. We stand here because the word of God is powerful. And this is the most important part of the message, the scripture. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. I declare the end from the beginning and ancient times from what is still to come, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And God, we know it's your good pleasure that you are going to accomplish, that you would break through us, Lord, that we may be so obstructed Lord, that we can't, we can't do what you've called us to do. We can't love people. We can't care for people. We can't even love you because if we can't love people, then how can we actually love you? So God, I ask you would break through today. That you would break through my heart so that I can walk out of here unobstructed and just open. I don't want to put you in a box, God. I don't want to try and dictate what you can and can't do, who you can and can't love. But Lord, we ask you to open up our hearts and minds. Blow us us away today with who you are. We love you and praise you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the other day, I came up with a a new idea for a book I've been working on. And I figured I'd just share it with you, get your take on it, see what you think about it. I honestly think that it'll be very refreshing for you. I think it'll be like a breath of fresh air, maybe a, a relief. I'll give you the title. The Ultimate Complete Comprehensive List of People Jesus Doesn't Expect Us to Love. Opening. 
Finally, you can hate the sinner, not just the sin. Say goodbye to loving your enemies. No more turning the other cheek, unless it's, well, the other kind of cheek. Jesus talked a lot. Yeah, you got it. I'll let you catch up. Jesus talked a lot about love, but thankfully, Jesus actually didn't mean you're supposed to literally love Everybody. Using careful contextual clues, I've scoured the scriptures and found 10 types of people you're totally exempt from showing the love of Jesus to. Now, when you encounter any of these people, you can tell them off, belittle them, or throw a brick in their face. Here you have it. Cross these people off your love list. They're not your responsibility. You are welcome. Now, Obviously, this is all crazy talk. This is no book idea of mine. But if Jesus didn't expect us to love certain people, like sometimes we might wish he would. I think we'd place this man in Caesarea at the top of the list. Acts chapter 10 verse 1 says, There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius a centurion in the Italian company. So it's not that he's a bad man or an unholy man or a mean man. It's just that, well, we begin with a distinctly Gentile, that is not Jewish city, Caesarea. I mean, where do you think Caesarea got its name? If you've ever ordered that kind of pizza, or if you've ever had that kind of a salad, or if you've ever stayed at that kind of a casino, you might have a clue. King Herod the Great, or as I like to call him, King Herod the Great Baby Killer, you know, the one who killed all the babies in the Christmas story. Funny how they always <laughs> don't talk about that. But he renamed it in honor of the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. He renamed it Caesarea. Caesarea stood on the Mediterranean coast about 30 miles north of Joppa. And at this time, Caesarea was the major Roman seaport for Palestine, this area right here. It was the most important center for Roman government and military activity in Palestine. So it's not that he's a bad man or an unholy man or a mean man. It's just that, well... We begin with a distinctly Gentile city, with a distinctly Gentile individual, with a distinctly Gentile name, Cornelius. Cornelius is a common, typical, through-and-through through Roman name. So it's not that he's a bad man or unholy man or a mean man. It's just that, well, we begin with a distinctly Gentile city, with a distinctly Gentile individual, with a distinctly Gentile name, with a distinctly Gentile position. Centurion in the Italian company. As a centurion, Cornelius would have been a, a military officer in charge of about 100 Soldiers, But the fact that he supervises or is in the Italian company means that Cornelius isn't just a Gentile, but he's a Roman too. A Roman citizen with, with considerable wealth and standing. So it's not that he's a bad man or an unholy man or a mean man. It's just that everything about verse 1 puts us in the realm of everything Gentile. He's an outsider. He's unclean. He's impure. He's uncircumcised and probably polytheistic too. 
But we learn something crazy about this distinctly Gentile individual. In verse 2, it says, He and his whole household were pious. That means devout or faithful. Gentile God worshipers. He gave generously to those in need among the Jewish people and prayed to God constantly. So he's a God-fearer. A Gentile, non-Jew who worships the God of Israel, not just with his lips, but with his life. He prays constantly and gives generously to those in need among the Jewish people. You could say he had every qualification of being a good Jew, that is, except for circumcision. He just couldn't cut it. Quite a chopping, I mean, stumbling, stumbling block, if you ask me. Wow, so great. You know, Cornelius, you sound like such a good guy. But it doesn't change the fact that you are an officer of the occupying army. You are an overlord. So even though you sound like a good guy, Cornelius, you are a Gentile overlord. So... Jews and Jewish Christians avoid you. And now, we should understand right now that that Judaism and Christianity at this point in history are not viewed as two separate religions. I I don't really know why we view them as two separate religions, because we share a lot of history together, except for the fact that, well, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. But uh, here, Christianity would just be viewed as a sect, an outpouring from the Jewish faith. So a lot of things that we're going to see today is this tension of, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm Christian, but I'm Jewish, but I'm Christian. I'm trying to follow God, and this is how we know to follow God, but God is redefining things. Verse 3 says, One day at nearly 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he, that is Cornelius, clearly saw an angel from God in a vision. The angel came to him and said, Cornelius! Startled, he stared at the angel and replied, "Uh, What is it, Lord? The angel said, Your prayers and compassionate acts are like a memorial offering to God. Send messengers to Joppa, a seaport on the Palestinian coast about 30 miles to the south. Send messengers to Joppa at once and summon a certain Simon, the one known as Peter. He is a guest of Simon the Tanner, whose house is near the seacoast. Great place for a tanner. UV beds, spray on tan, airbrush, get that sun-kissed beach body looking great while you're living on the coast. Different type of tanner we're talking about here. When the angel who was speaking to him had gone, Cornelius, who apparently doesn't view any of this as crazy talk, like the great green room and a corded telephone and a red balloon and a cow jumping over the moon and stuff. Cornelius summoned two of his household servants along with a pious soldier from his personal staff. Gentiles, ugh, outsiders, unclean, impure, uncircumcised individuals. He explained everything to them, then sent them to Joppa. So off they go. At noon on the following day, as their journey brought them close to the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. (laughs) Because that's where everyone goes to pray, right? On the roof. Well, let's talk about that. Raise the roof. Most roofs in the New Testament were 
flat and made of straw and clay, pounded mud, sometimes with mixed in pebbles and stones held up by heavy wooden beams. They generally had an easy means of access from a sturdy wooden ladder inside the house or a, uh, some steps on the outside of the house. And it's where Peter goes to pray because it's a place of rest and privacy. It says in verse 10, he became hungry and wanted to eat. And that's what happens when you become hungry. While others were preparing the meal, he had a visionary experience. He, ha- he saw heaven or, or sky, which can also be translated. It's the same word, uranos, heaven and sky, opened up and something like a large linen sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. Inside the sheet were all kinds of four-legged animals, reptiles, and wild birds. So not like chickens, but like hawks and stuff. A voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Yeah, but Peter is a distinctly Jewish man holding dearly to distinctly Jewish practices. And according to the food laws of Leviticus chapter 11, Peter, a distinctly Jewish man holding dearly to distinctly Jewish practices, can't cook up that raccoon rigatoni. Can't cook up that salamander souffle or that kangaroo-flavored kombucha. And definitely, definitely no, no, no bacon. I just want to pray for him right now. (laughs) But a voice, and a second later we'll find out, is God told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And in verse 14, Peter exclaimed, absolutely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Peter declares he won't violate the food laws of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 by eating anything impure or unclean. After all, these food laws are what separates. It's one of the practices that made the Jews distinctly different from those outsiders, those unclean, impure, uncircumcised, and probably polytheistic to Gentile neighbors. But speaking of neighbors, Peter's so concerned about being such a distinctly Jewish man holding dearly to distinctly Jewish practices like food laws. And yet, our friend Peter, the Jewish Christian, is living in the house of Simon the Tanner. Not the guy with UV beds and spray-on tan and all that, but the guy who manufactures animal skins for clothes and tents and scrolls and other materials. Tanning is a messy job. It's a smelly task. And in Jewish society, tanners would be ritually unclean most of the time because of their work with dead animals. But to Peter, it's like no big deal. So like in one area of your life, it's okay to be impure and unclean, while in another, oh, absolutely not, Lord. I could never do something like... sounds like Peter... One of his biggest obstructions is here his own inclination. You know, to us, these food laws and matters of ritual purity, it all kind of sounds like crazy talk, like three little bears sitting on chairs and two little kittens and a pair of mittens, a little toy house and a young mouse. Let's talk about this impure and unclean. 
impure, unclean is not a a moral category to describe things sinful or dirty, but a, a ritual description of things outside the center of God's holy presence. Kosher laws prohibited eating certain unclean foods in Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. They reminded the Jews of their covenant relationship with God and also how they were set apart for God's service. But here, God is redefining things. Well, in fact, he actually already did when Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark 7, 14 through 19. But I guess Peter forgot. Here, God is redefining things, and it's a lot bigger than food. Verses 15 and 16, the voice spoke a second time. Never consider unclean what God has made pure. This happened three times. Peter's awfully obstructed. Then the object was suddenly pulled back into heaven. You know, whether we know it or not, it's so easy for us to be obstructed. First of all, whether we know it or not, each of us tote around brains full of bias and prejudice. Like, do you realize whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, You are currently, right now, filtering every sentence I'm saying through at least 25 cognitive biases. You're trying to formulate and understand and agree with or disagree with or frame every sentence, every word I'm saying through 25 different cognitive biases. Let me show you what I mean by this. When I say good night moon, you might be thinking about the gravitational pull and tides, or you might be thinking about how tired you are and ready to say goodnight to the moon, or you might be thinking, I love that book. I love reading it with my daughter. Or get this, you might be thinking about all those things and more at exactly the same time. Now, apply that logic To our human-human interaction, it's easy to be obstructed by our issues of bias and prejudice. No matter we're eager to publish and print and pre-order and get our signed copy of the ultimate, complete, comprehensive list of the people Jesus doesn't expect us to love. But secondly, it's so easy for us to be obstructed by tradition or routine or comfort. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. So can we please just leave it alone? It's always been that way for years and years, and it should stay. It's easier just not to question the three little bears and why they're sitting in chairs. Just leave the two kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse. I like it that way. It's tradition. It's routine. It's comfort. Yeah, that can obstruct us for sure. And I'm not trying to say that tradition or routine or comfort is wrong. We all have natural prejudices and and biases that, that help us to formulate our thoughts. And sometimes we really need to work on those things because they're obstructing us, just like routine and tradition and comfort. 
but it's something we need to be aware of. And I think right now we're aware that, man, I'm not so different than Peter after all. Verses 17 through 23a says, Peter was bewildered about the meaning of the vision. Seemed like crazy talk, but it was stuck on repeat three times over. So, well, just then the messengers sent by Cornelius discovered the whereabouts of Simon's house and arrived at the gate. Coincidental timing? I think not. It's God's timing. Calling out, they inquired whether Simon, known as Peter, was a guest there. While Peter was brooding over the vision, the spirit interrupted him. Look, three people are looking for you. Go downstairs. Don't ask questions. Just go with them because I have sent them. So Peter went downstairs and told them, I'm the one you are looking for. Why have you come? They replied, We have come on behalf of Cornelius, a centurion and righteous man, a God worshiper who is well respected by all Jewish people. A holy angel directed him to summon you to his house and hear what you have to say. And check it out. Peter invited them in to the house as his guests. This is huge. Social boundaries broken, torn down, destroyed. Peter is experiencing a completely new redefining of things, a movement from being obstructed to being open. When Peter invited them into his house as guests, it's the cultural equivalent of saying, I accept you. And now some of you might be thinking, like, well, shouldn't that be a given? Like, we should accept people, right? Like, that's what a Christian should do, shouldn't they? We should be loving. We should be accepting. We should be caring. We should be kind. We should be thoughtful. We should be inviting. We should be open. We should and we should and we should. And you know what happens? We should all over ourselves. We should all over ourselves because we say that we should, but we don't. Some of you thought I said something different there. But I don't give a should. I don't give a should because I want to see us as the church open and moving and going and doing it. Not just, oh, I should. Someone should. You should. I should. No. If you're saying, oh, man, someone should really pray for that person. Someone should really help. Someone should really go, you know, on a missions trip and go love the world. Someone should really, maybe you should. Maybe you should, maybe, maybe I, I should, I don't know, maybe I should. No, we can't do that. We don't want to be the church that maybe they should have done stuff, but they didn't. And so they died and, uh, you know, closed up the doors. Should have done better. Should have tried harder. Should have loved deeper. I don't want to be the church known as that. I don't want to be the person who should have done these things. As you look back over your life, you know, like 150 years from now when you are on your deathbed or something, I don't want you to be haunted by the things that you should have done. Because I know I don't want to be. Last night I was at a, a wedding. One of my best friends got married and... Uh, uh, one of my 
other best friends was there. He came down from Oregon. He's in a wheelchair. He was in an accident. Uh, it was paralyzed years ago, 10 years ago. And uh, he's been a great friend all my life. And we said goodbye like two or three times. And I thought about that after, after we said goodbye. I'm like, what if, the, what if that was the last time that we said goodbye? Was that really like worth it? Like we said goodbye two or three times, but did I really tell him like, thank you, or I love you, or you're, you've been a great friend to me? You know, like, I feel like I should have done that. So I should probably like talk to him after church or something like that. Hopefully he's still around, you know, but I don't want to be the person or the church who should have done stuff. Well, verse 23b says, the next day he got up and went with them, that's Peter going with them, together with some of the believers from Joppa. So he brought his own backup. They arrived in Caesarea, the distinctly Gentile city, the following day. Anticipating their arrival, Cornelius had gathered his relatives and close friends. So it's, it's a party. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in order to honor him. Dude, you don't do that. You don't do that if you are a Roman centurion in the Italian company and here you are bowing down before some Jewish Christian. You don't do that. Apparently, Cornelius thinks Peter is larger than life. But Peter lifted him up saying, get up, like you, I'm just human. As they continued to talk, Peter went inside. What? Peter went inside. Here we are in this distinctly Gentile city, distinctly Gentile individual with a distinctly Gentile name and a distinctly Gentile position. And here you are, Peter, a distinctly Jewish man holding dearly to distinctly Jewish practices. Here you are entering into his house. This is huge. Social boundaries broken, torn down. Demolished. Peter is having a completely new redefining of things from going from obstructed to open. Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Like I said, it's a party. Probably majority Gentiles, ugh, outsiders, unclean, uncircumcised, impure, probably polytheistic too. But he said to them, you all realize or, or do you realize that it is forbidden for a Jew to associate or visit with outsiders. Let me just read that again. Do you all realize, or, or do you realize, that it is forbidden for a Jew to associate or visit with outsiders? Is it really? Let's talk about this. Forbidden? Sure, it was taboo for Jews to associate with Gentiles and to visit them in their homes, primarily because the Gentiles didn't observe the food laws and matters of ritual purity. Therefore, any physical contact with the Gentiles would have made them ceremonially unclean. But outside Israel, Jews routinely associated and bumped shoulders with Gentiles in their daily lives. Gentiles who were actually welcome in the Jewish synagogue. And in the temple of Jerusalem, there was a space provided called the court of the Gentiles where Jews and Gentiles mingled. So Peter's statement here that it's forbidden for a Jew to associate or visit with outsiders 
is pretty narrow. That's a narrow view not shared by all Jews of his day. I'm beginning to think it's more of an obstruction of Peter's own interpretation. Well, furthermore, the Torah or the book of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, never prohibits Jews from associating or visiting with outsiders. Instead, Peter's statement here reflects the baggage of ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism that the Jewish communities of his day had engineered. Baggage not uncommon to people groups who are marginalized. In other words, Peter's just regurgitating the standard mantra of his day. But I love what he says next. He offends everyone in the party with his opening line. But then he continues, However, God has shown me that I should never call a person impure or unclean. This is huge. Social boundaries broken, torn down, demolished. Peter has this new redefining that's moving him from being obstructed to open. But wait, I thought like the vision was all about food and stuff. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter understands the real point of the vision is not about a change that needs to occur in his diet, but a change that needs to occur in his attitude toward people from obstructed to open. Because in God's eyes, all people are clean and worthy of respect. Peter, this distinctly Jewish man holding dearly to distinctly Jewish practices, quickly and humbly (laughs) explains he's been wrong. Wrong about the Gentiles. Wrong about the outsider, the impure, the unclean, the uncircumcised. Just wrong. I remember uh, years ago, Jeff was speaking at the rescue mission in Oxnard, and I tagged along. And I remember we, we go into the chapel there, and there's rows and rows of chairs. It's all empty. No one's in there yet. And I go, and I sit down in one of the chairs, and there I sit, perfect posture, facing forward, eyes up front. Jeff is talking to somebody, some guy he knows, I don't know, someone in the program or one of the staff members. And I just sit there, perfect posture, facing forward, eyes up front. I don't know, five minutes later, some guys from the program trickle in. They're wearing their navy blue t-shirts, says rescue mission. And I just sit there, perfect posture, facing forward. Eyes up front. Moment later, a larger group of guys come in and find their seats and get situated. And I just sit there. Perfect posture. Facing forward. Eyes up front. Jeff comes over and he says to me, you know, you should talk to these guys. You know, if, if you don't talk to these guys, how do you expect to minister to them? I thought to myself, well, you know what? Like, I don't know them. And I'm not like them. You know, I, I don't struggle with drugs and alcohol. I, I'm not homeless. Huh. Crazy talk. 
obstructed by my own crazy talk. But then it occurred to me a moment later that, you know what? I'm a man and they're men. I have hobbies and they have hobbies. I have favorite foods and they have favorite foods. I have struggles and they have struggles. I have doubts and they have doubts. I have anxieties and they have anxieties too. And I'm not going to shoot all over myself. So instead, I learned right then and there how to be open. I learned how I can find common ground with anybody. With anybody and everybody. And if I just sat there, perfect posture, facing forward, eyes up front, I would never find it. I'd be obstructed by my own crazy talk. Verses 29 continues. Says, Peter is speaking here. For this reason, when you sent for me, I came without objection. I want you to know then, I want to know then why you sent me. In other words, what am I doing here? Like, I followed the Holy Spirit's guiding, said, yeah, go, and I went. What now? And then Cornelius tells him all the stuff that happened. You know, this is the angel came to me. He recounts the whole story. And then Cornelius continues, I sent for you right away, and you were kind enough to come. Now here we are, gathered in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has directed you to say. And so Peter pulls out his five-point sermon. He starts to pass out the, the fill-in-the-blank bulletin sermon notes. He, he's got his, his PowerPoint presentation. Would you fall? No, he just speaks from his heart. He speaks from his heart. And Peter said, I am really learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people or another. In other words, God doesn't play favorites. But he treats all people with fairness and justice. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And then Peter just starts flowing. Jesus did this, Jesus did that, Jesus overcame this, Jesus overcame that. And his mic drop is the mic drop of all mic drops. Because boom, the Holy Spirit falls on all the listeners, everyone who hears. That is, on the Gentiles. The outsiders, unclean, impure, uncircumcised. The Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter's like, oh, we should go baptize him. And so they get baptized because Jesus is Lord of all. But is Jesus Lord of all, in all, and over all, of all of my life? It's easy to go through the great green room of my life and show Jesus all the things that he could be Lord over. Here's a telephone and a, a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. You could be Lord over all of these. Or here's two little kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse. You could be Lord over all of these. But if Jesus is Lord of all, in all and over all when it comes to all of my life, 
think he might wonder, hey, uh, what's stuffed in the closet here? Or, uh, yeah, this rug, yeah, what's swept under that? These drawers, what's shut away in them? Oh, oh, it's your own pre-ordered, published, signed copy of the ultimate, complete, comprehensive list of people Jesus doesn't expect us to love? Thought you should know that doesn't exist. Thought you should know the people you are repulsed by are the people I died to save. Thought you should know the people you can't stand are the people I want you to stand up for. Thought you should know the people you criticize are the people I want you to evangelize. Thought you should know the people you avoid are the people I love and I want you to love. Thought you should know the people you ignore are the people I adore and want you to adore. And I think Paul says it best as means of application for us today in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. I think we'll just skip that line right there, that next one. And don't think you know it all. Hmm. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you or obstruct you or keep you sitting there thinking, I should do this or I should do that, but conquer evil by doing good. So God, here's our opportunity to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. God, I invite you into the great green room of my house. I invite you into my heart and my life and I ask, Lord, 
that you do your cleansing work of redefining. I pray, Lord, that you would redefine my bias and prejudice, tradition, routine, comfort. I want my life to reflect that of yours, Jesus. I pray that we as a church would do the same. I'm just so sick and tired of doing the same things over and over. And it feels like like we're still stuck. We're still obstructed because there's stuff holding us back. But I pray today, God, there would be breakthrough. Pray that as the prayer team comes up to this, this is not something that we should do, maybe someday, but we take advantage of now. And I pray that as we have a new believer's table where people are kind of experiencing you for the first time or just get equipped for the road ahead, that they, they didn't, shouldn't think like, I should go there. They should just go. So Lord, in all the areas of our lives where we feel like we should do something, I just pray that we would do it, that we would be radically impulsive to loving you and loving your people, that we'd be reckless in our love for people, that we would be known as a church that is not just full of dead, dry bones, but we are living and breathing and active and alive. And Jesus, I pray if someone wants to come to life in you today, that they would pray, Jesus, I'm done, I'm tired. I'm sick of my old life hopeless ways, but Jesus, would you come into my heart and be my king? Because you died on the cross, and you rose from the grave, and the life you promised is life everlasting. It's a life worth living. And so, Lord, would you be Lord over all of our lives? Retune us, redefine us to view the world through your eyes, to see people and the love you have for them, not just as obstacles who need to get out of our way or obstructions that we are obstructed by, but Lord, let us be open to your heart for our lives and for our world. We need you more than ever. We give you praise and thanksgiving. Thank you for the life you've given us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.